What happens when deep fakes and the technology that sits behind it becomes so effective that you and I can sit and watch a video of someone saying something and optically would categorically say that that was the person saying it and it could be 100% false. Welcome to the second renaissance where we decode the rebirth of human creativity in a technology-driven world. In this second season, we explore how sustainability is elevating our human consciousness and catalyzing us to create within constraints. We decipher why now is the biggest entrepreneurial opportunity since the dawn of industrialization and what leaders can do to harness the winds of change. I'm Anders Sormanilsson, global futurist, impact champion and father and your host for the second renaissance. Today on the second renaissance, I sit down for a deep and meaningful over a sustainable modus operandi beer or two with Dan Crickstein, the director of the Growth Intelligence Centre at News Corp Australia. We discuss sustainable news and content, responsible production of news stories in the context of synthetic AI-driven media, the changing role of news in an age of influences and alternative facts, the hyperspeed of fake news dissemination, the counterfactual to shortened attention spans, and the brand damage that comes from cybersecurity breaches and recycling exposés, and ultimately how brands and businesses can grow ethically and sustainably into the future in alignment with the UN Sustainable Development Goals. I really enjoy this odyssey into the metaverse and virtual realities with Dan, and I know you will too. Now, a quick word on pedigree. Dan is a consumer strategy and analytics leader with global experience across retail, consumer goods, digital and media industries. He currently leads News Corp's Growth Intelligence Center, supporting publishers, brands and industries develop growth strategies through unapologetic customer-led thinking and product innovation. Prior to News Corp, Dan spent over a decade building transformative insights capabilities in organizations including Qantas and Paramount Pictures and 20th Century Fox. Dan spends his life thinking about the future and I am in awe of his data-based foresights and human reflections. Now on with the show. Dan Crickstein. Hello. Hello. Welcome. <laughs> I don't know. Like, it's a reversal of roles. Because <laughs> I remember at Ad Week a few weeks or a few months ago, it was you calling the shots and cross-examining. Yes. Well, I'm hoping that this is a bit more of a two-way conversation, yeah. but... Uh, Who knows? I might, I might break out into cross-examination uh, uh, all, all of a sudden. Let's see where we go. Now, tell me a little bit about, first of all, your role... Um, I believe you're now the Director of Growth Intelligence within uh, News Corp. Yes. Uh, what does that mean? What does it mean? It, uh, it is a very flamboyant title. So, uh, so I lead a, a, an exceptional team of individuals who are mandated to uncover exceptional insights. Um, so we work with brands and industries across the country. We work with the publishers. We work with agencies to um, deeply explore the future needs of consumers, um, to understand what keeps them up at night, um, what the hopes and dreams are, what, what we're seeing in terms of mind sh mindset shifts. Um, but fundamentally, we're, we're there in a position to support the growth 
of, of the companies that we partner with, the growth of, um, of news um, as a construct um, and to support fundamentally the, the, the audiences that we reach um, and build a better Australia through having an informed citizenry. Mm. Now I know you're you're a massive consumer advocate. You, yes. you have you certainly you know within the growth uh, intelligence unit, as I'm going to call it, the sort of you know you, sort of the foresight skunk works within News Corp. Do you want to just kind of tell yeah. us how, how you fit within yeah, the so, um, ecosystem first? Yeah, of all. so the, the way the, the best way I've heard it articulated, I will play back um, someone else's words. If we were Samsung, um, you know, you would have a, a multi-billion-dollar panel facility exploring fold technology, what's over the horizon for consumer electronics. Um, you know, that, that, as you said, that sort of R&D skunk works. Um, publishers and media, you know, whether or not you work in the film industry, the, you know, the, uh, the publication industry, you know, the, the music industry, you're in the business of audiences. Um, and so we are, for lack of a better articulation, um, an audience R&D centre, you know, understanding how do we develop products, services that delight the very many Australians that um, major publishers speak to. Yeah. Well, fascinating to have you here on, on, on the second no, Renaissance. Thank you for having me. I, I should do a little toast. Let's Cheers. Do a little toast because um, uh, I should say also for those, uh, for those audience members um, who are not used to or accustomed to us seeing us drink anything other than coffee yes. on this show. We are actually today uh, drinking- After little, hours on a Friday. <laughs> it is. Uh, I mean, it's one of my favorite activities, hosting podcasts yep. and interviewing people on a Friday afternoon. And we thought, well, you know, we are allowed. It's like 32 degrees or something <laughs> and very humid in Sydney. So we thought, well, let's go. Says the man wearing the sweatshirt. <laughs> exactly. It's very much on brand at the moment, but I'm trying to cool myself <laughs> yeah. down here. Uh, courtesy of Modus Operandi, which of course is a local brewery here and everyone uh, apparently enjoys a little bit of a drop so um we are not sponsored by mo but uh nonetheless we are certainly uh, support their product <laughs> we, we we certainly are today um so great to have you here on, thank on, you on, appreciate on the second you renaissance me. and uh we're not just going to talk beer nutrition we're going to talk digital nutrition we're going to talk sustainability a sustainable digital content awesome um we'll talk about um this idea that content is chemistry wrapped in narrative who knows? We might talk about you know the concept of fake news versus real yeah. news and and the emerging metaverses. I mean, there's so much to talk about, but um, perhaps just to kind of launch us into um, into the future discussion. Um, if I were to say that humanity, us humans, parents, kids, in an era of cyberbullying and digital uh, distraction from distraction and you know, digital addictions, etc. If I were to say that humanity needs better digital nutrition for our hearts and minds, what would you say as, as, as a publisher, as someone that's really interested in, in the future of this space? Feel free to agree or just totally disagree. I, I couldn't agree more. Um, I think, you know, and you and I discussed this, um, you know, in prior, in our prior interactions. I think the idea of a digital diet, I think, is a really apt analogy. Um, and much like a diet, right, you know, that you can draw illusions towards a diet, you know, the, this idea of a balanced diet, right, we, we don't just, we wouldn't just put one particular food group into our bodies, right? It doesn't give us the the diversity of, of nutrition that we need, right? And I think um, we can and should do a better job um, as individuals in getting a balanced diet 
um, as it pertains to digital nutrition. I think it's a, I think it's a profoundly accurate um, analogy for for what I think is becoming a real challenge um, for particularly for younger audiences where we see um, the impacts of what are really effective algorithms funneling us into what I would call high GI content, mm-hmm. right? You know, this idea, yeah, yeah. you know, high GI versus low GI, yeah, yeah. Um, the, the sugar hit that, you know, peaks really quickly and then comes off the boil. Um, and much like, you know, and I know you and I both have young children, you know, if, if, if all we fed our children was the high GI sugar hit, we would know exactly where that mm. movie goes, right? You know, yeah. we would see well, the impact. Child abuse, Re- yeah. yeah, we would see really quickly um, <clears throat> what happens to their well-being, right? And I think the same can be said around digital nutrition and our ability to really understand the value and, and, and the importance of diversity in terms of what we consume digitally. Mm. Um, so I think it's – I couldn't agree more. I think um, – and this is something that, that I know um, not just, you know, uh, publishers as an industry but, you know, digital, digital content providers and content creators are really grappling with because um, algorithmic content, right, you know, and, you know, think Netflix, think Spotify. Um, these, these ecosystems are trained to give us what we want, right, by design. You know, it's a really – it's a fine-tuned machine. But if every time my daughter came to me and I gave her exactly what she wanted, I'd be having pasta with cheese every night and gummy bears, mm. right? And and that's not a good outcome for anybody. Um, so I think that there's this tension that we're seeing um, created where uh, – and people are becoming more conscious of it, right? You know, people, people are becoming more acutely aware of the echo chamber effect. Mm. But I think what we're starting to see is a real uh, ready reckoner for um, – particularly in younger audiences, this pursuit of truth. Um, and we see this manifest most beautifully within Generation Z, um, who are, you know, staunch pursuers of truth. And they are amazing consumers of, of, of information um, because they've grown up in an ecology where information has been at their fingertips. So compared to their millennial or their Gen X counterparts, their ability to synthesise depths of information rapidly is uh, meaningfully greater than millennials and Gen X. And so when you're, you're faced with this idea of, well, these are the perspectives that I'm seeking, but how do I maintain and how do I dance this tension between going deep down the dark rabbit hole for content that an algorithm knows I'm going to align with and knows that I'm going to um, associate closely with and it's going to elicit the reaction that it knows that I, I want versus that sort of serendipitous exploration and serendipitous discovery of, of perspectives or um, framings that might be adjacent or polarised mm. to what I might hold. Um, where that tension isn't really well managed, you, we start to see really, really unfortunate outcomes and we're seeing this globally where people are getting further and further down the garden path of um, exclusively listening to things that, um, that confirm or affirm their perspectives. Mm. And, I mean, this is, this is well known, right, confirmation bias yep. um, and our sort of affinity towards, you know, and aligning towards things that confirm what we think that we believe. Mm. Um, so I think, you know, to, to a very long-winded answer to, to, your, you know, to your question, but I think... I think that this is the tough nut for us to crack uh, as, a, as, a, as a populace, um, you know, and I think 
what I'm hoping, you know, a more balanced diet and, a, and a, you know, a more balanced diet in terms of digital nutrition delivers us is this sort of rediscovery of the lost art of, of civil discourse, mm. right? Discussing and stretching and, and, um, and exploring issues from all sides. So I'm sitting here nodding and, you know, <laughs> confirming my bias yeah. to agree with you and, and, and engaging in, in civil discourse with you. But I guess just those reflections, you know, they stir up, you know, these sort of reactive comments from the likes of Trump to say that, hey, if you if you're if your awareness goes wider and if you've downloaded the across the aisle app that checks how much you know politically polarized content you're consuming just from one side across the aisle and you get a little nudge to say hey have you considered these perspectives or even mm. as i was on spotify the other day i um i got a little alert from spotify saying that you know i'd listened to 89 different sources for my podcasts mm. And it was like a little, you know, like a little gamified nudge that you're like, you actually have a fairly diversified. I, I didn't even realize. I thought I was only listening to Esther Perel at the moment. Um, but, um, and Brene Brown. And so you can sense my kind of, you know, my interest in that space. But um, I was like, oh, that's pretty good. Like Spotify is actually keeping track and maybe their recommendation engine is going to throw up some really interesting stuff. And they've, you know, increasingly their algorithms seem to be aligned to not just want to have me go down one rabbit hole, but actually provide me with a variety of different perspectives. Absolutely. I mean, there was a, there was a great article I read recently that attributed 80% of Spotify's value to that exact algorithm that you're referring to, right? The algorithm that drives the My Discover Weekly. Um, and anyone that, you know, and I'm, I'm a massive audiophile. I love listening to music. It's one of my, you know, passionate pursuits. And you're spot on, right? Um, the algorithms, be it through Spotify or Tidal or Cobus or whatever, whatever the um, your preferred, um, your preferred consumption, uh, you know, ecosystem. The value is not in giving you more of what you want. The value is in the serendipitous discovery of things that you may not have thought you liked. Mm. And I can, you know, I can wholeheartedly say that I've discovered, you know, Many new genres in music, many new genres in things that I thought I would never stumble upon without that serendipitous mm. discovery. And it's not, and I'm not, and I'm not staying with Spotify, and I'm not choosing Spotify because it's giving me more of that niche genre that I've just played. It's because it's helping me rediscover, like, and, and this seek for mm. you know for new, this cathartic release of oh my god, this is something that I've never experienced before. Um, and we've started to see, you know, with, with the likes of um, of even like, of Netflix, where where they've sort of danced that fine line, and they've probably skewed a little bit too far towards just feeding you more of what mm. you want, um, and then they've had to rein the algorithm back towards, you know, finding that balance of, hey, you like this? Here are some other things that are adjacent to it, but here are three things that you might not have thought about that we think, based on some really smart learning, mm. you might love. And we're going to take a punt on that. And some we're going to get wrong, but some we're going to get really right. And I think it's that balance of I watched it. No, it wasn't really for me. But then there was this thing that I would have it would have never come across my plate. And you know what? That's opened up this huge ecology of things that I love mm. that I didn't think that I would. Now, just because um, <clears throat> because you're a man of the world and a, and a global citizen <laughs> yeah, yeah. and an audiophile that you know favors tied all over Spotify clearly because of the 
beautiful sound. Um, tell us about a couple of those uh, discoveries, just just for the rest of us, so we can fe- feed the algorithm and, and beast here. But give us a couple of things you found. Oh, okay, I'm giving you a peek into 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 your death the, metal. The deep, uh, <laughs> no, that, interestingly, that's been the one. That's been the one. Um, the one genre of music I've really struggled to get into. But um, I have re discovered or I should say discovered my love of folk music um I you know I I grew up listening to electronic and in all forms you know I've got a a brother who's a you know a very very talented side trance producer um and I'd sort of I'd I'd really gone through this that that phase of the very many flavors of electronic you know from deep house to progressive and then I you know it, it started to bring me a little bit more to sort of this nexus of um synthetic music but with beautiful uh instrumental Mm. laddered through it and then it sort of slowly kept taking me adjacent towards things like folk music and and um and beautiful instrumental music from across the globe and so that was sort of this and and now i'm i'm you know i'm fascinated by that whole area and there's some great uh, Swedish and, and Norwegian uh, musicians that I that I listen to now that are part of my you know my oh, favourite playlists. That like I, again, first aid kit, or yeah, are they, are they yeah. too mainstream? <laughs> um, yeah. So I, and yeah. you know, or um, I'll try to, I'll try to find another example in. Um, this will all be in the show notes, of course, because it's yeah, yeah, totally yeah. on point. Uh, I'm trying to think, you know, in terms of something uh, something audiovisual, but um, I've always loved documentaries, uh, but. You know, even with documentaries, and documentaries are this amazing avenue for you to explore new areas of interest, right? Um, and there was this, uh, there was this amazing documentary that um, that I would have stumbled that I only stumbled on because of Netflix called Wild Wild Country, um, and it's about the uh, this uh, cult from back, I think it was in the eighties, uh, called the Rajneeshi. Apparently, really in Australia um, I'd never heard of them and I went mm. and spoke to my parents I'm like oh you've got to watch this documentary it's about and, and you know my mom's like oh yeah the orange people um, but I would have never mm. thought to explore that area you know mm. and understand and again that's a that's a brilliant look into sort of you know human psychology and how you know we are self-corrupting so if you know for any of our listeners that want to go deep down a rabbit warren of um, mm. you know how even a even a, a convent with you know infinite possibility and all the ambition and the idealism in the world can rot from within. It's this mm. amazing human experiment. Um, that's my you know my recommendation for the day. But um, but that was something that you know was really adjacent to to what I what you know a, a standard you know algorithm of what what does Dan like and mm. what does Dan um, watch and listen to would have generated. Um, and so there's some amazing examples of where where you really go tangential, and that that surprise and delight that's what makes a really sticky customer mm. relationship. Well, I think it's fascinating too that that sort of surprise and delight, and and what brands can do, and certainly content news and um, entertainment providers can do to almost educate and equip people with a new sort of social currency which is like oh have you heard about oh yeah. first aid kit or have you heard about wild wild yeah country like you know because it kind of makes you the most interesting person in the room when you've got something meaningful to share that is a great podcast or is a great documentary because you're sort of you know bit of we work talk here sort yeah. of elevating yeah. you know humanity's consciousness potentially throughout 
content and great digital nutrition as opposed to just saying, hey, you know, just read this vitriol on, on Twitter yeah, and 140 absolutely. characters or less. So th- thinking about that and like the, the future of humanity, like, the, I mean, this, this idea about content and, and well-being, digital nutrition. I mean, the UN Sustainable Development Goal number three addresses good health and well-being, including mental health. Are there ways in which news and media kind of feed into that? I mean, again, this idea uh, from uh, our friends Moskowitz at uh, ABZ Lab, this idea that content is chemistry wrapped in narrative. In other words, you know, whatever we produce, whether it's a, you know, TikTok reel or if it's an Instagram story, whatever it happens to be, every piece of content in this podcast is potential brain chemistry wrapped in a story, wrapped in a narrative. Like even the UN Sustainable Development mm. Goals recognize the importance of uh, good health and well-being for the world, for the mm. future. So what, what role does news and media play in that? Um, and I promise to our listeners this is not a Dorothy Dixer, but uh, this is something that, that I've had the privilege of, of exploring deeply over the last six months because obviously... Coming out of the back of a pandemic, our entire mental model of health and well-being has changed. Um, it is expa- for most, it's expanded profoundly, right? You know, even you know, if you think about you know the, the the number of buildings, the architects that are now integrating health and well-being theory into the way, even into the, the structures that we work in, um, and I think much like like any other foundational need, you know, publishers or content creators have the the altruistic role of helping audiences and consumers navigate and we see this uh in in you know particularly within the news cycle and within media um that as the rate of change you know um becomes faster and faster you know the 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 really old adage you know the the rate of change has never been faster but it will never be this slow again right Mm. i think Um, i might be guilty of having said that yeah i'm sure i have no doubt i think there's a cap nod to a canadian prime minister on that um but but one of the things that we found in this um in this brilliant piece of work uh that that we did with uh with one of the partner organizations that we work with um was that you know Consumers are sitting, or audiences are sitting in, a number of really different anchoring narratives. What you know, what health and well-being means for you right now, and what health and well-being means for me right now, might be polar, polarized opposites. Um, the one thing that is unilateral across audiences that we've seen is that the pandemic has acted as a lightning rod to reappraise our life. Right? What matters? Right? Am I like? Does it really matter if I get to my prime of life and I've got? all of those awards and, you know, and all of that recognition if I've missed the years of my children growing up. Um, I think we've all, you know, it's acted as a lightning rod in recognising, first and foremost, the, the, the critical importance of health and well-being in our broader frame, framing of reality and our optimism and in making us more resilient and more, um, more resolved in making the world a better place. Um, interestingly, I think the pandemic has done one other thing, which is it's made health and well-being everyone's problem. You know, if we if we hark back to pre-pandemic years, health and well-being was a very uh, individual pursuit, right? It was it was um, 
I'm getting, I want to work on my well-being. I'm going to go to the gym and I'm going to work out. I'm going to work on my mental health. It's for me and it's my problem and I'm going to do it. Um, one of the most amazing transitions that I've seen um, through the pandemic, and, and there's, a, there's an ocean of research on this, is that um, we've seen this, we, we've shifted from sort of an individualist frame, framing of, of health and well-being to a collectivist one. Um, and so to your point earlier... And that doesn't just mean like group... No, no, but, but, gr- but your group a boot camps. No, but but your, that your well being is my responsibility, mm. and not only that, I have a fundamental role to play in your well being, right? So, um, give me an example of that. Is that organisations promoting it, or like this collectivist idea? Just yeah, just the, the, I think you know a, a really great way uh, to articulate this is in the role of our leadership, right? Um, you know. If you were to ask leaders of big teams over the last two years, you know, how, how their time has been spent, right? You know, let's, we, we go to the mighty pie chart um, and you say, you know, in the last two years, what percentage of your time has been spent on supporting your team with compassion and empathy and, you know, stepping into the role of counsellor, stepping into the role of friend, stepping into, the, you know, stepping into these roles that are probably a little bit adjacent for a lot of leaders um, and if you were to compare that to the two years prior, right, I think that you would see a meaningful swing of the pendulum towards these roles that we have to play as leaders. We are obligated to play them. Um, and for, the, you know, for those that, are, you know, that take leading people seriously, we're privileged to be able to do so, right? Um, and so this, you know, th- I think that there has been a reckoning and a, and a real recognition of, of the role that I play in my team's well-being and the role that my leader plays in my well-being. Um, and I think we've seen it the other way as well, that the role that my leader plays in my life has fundamentally an impact on my children. Mm-hmm. And I mean, you and I were talking mm-hmm. about this just, just very recently around what our children see in this new blended working dynamic. Um, and the unforeseen symptoms and unforeseen impacts of what we see through the lens of professionals and you know and, and experienced uh, executives versus what our children see mm. when we're working from home and what our children frame that working from home dynamic as and so I think you know smaller decisions that that might have had a very um, ring-fenced impact on our lives have much broader ripple effects now um, mm. given the blended nature of how we work and the very many roles that we step into um, so that so that's leaders almost having like uh, through the pandemic through the focus on mental health almost a permission that rather than you know asking the question are you okay as per are you okay day which is now every day um, that mental health and being asked like having the ability I guess to ask the challenging questions of is everything okay at home like that would have been quite confrontational pre-pandemic would you say and now it's more like you're actually doing you're it's like yeah yeah, it's almost like a it's not a hygiene factor i don't want to diminish it in any way but now like it doesn't seem as awkward maybe yeah look and, and depending on who you ask my, my personal belief is it is a hygiene factor. Mm. I mean, you're, you, you, have a, you have a fundamental responsibility as a leader to support the people that are in your duty of care, mm. right? The same way that teachers do, right? Um, and I think... But do you think, like, pre-pandemic, that every leader would have been like, oh, yeah, I really do ask the tough questions of, you know, from a mental health perspective and... 
No, no, I don't. I don't. Sort of almost, almost what some people might have pre-pandemic thought of as like prying, <laughs> like yeah. you know, overstepping the boundary. Probably not. I think it's a good point, but I think that there, you know, and it kind of goes back to. I think that there's this broader diffusion of the dichotomy of work and home, right? Yeah. Um, you know, there are, you know, one of the most amazing things about um, about the pandemic. And there are not that many, but there are a few. There's always a silver lining, is that we have seen the humans behind the job titles, right? Um, there is nothing better than seeing someone's young child run in and want to say hi to everybody on the Zoom call, right? And I think that that's it, there's an an amazing um, there's an amazing outcome of that, which is we we see the people behind the output, um, and I think that that's. That's something that was happening over time, but but much like a lot of things in terms of digital uptake and digital adoption, mm. um, we've seen a meteoric acceleration of that through mm. the pandemic. Um, and I think you know to come to, to sort of to come back to to the the pointy question that you asked, I think um, publishers and content creators have have a foundational role to play in helping people navigate these new mental models, particularly within health and wellbeing. Because one, one of the things that we found um, when we were looking at health and wellbeing, particularly the emotional tapestry of, of health and wellbeing, like where are people sitting, sitting, you know, in terms of their, their framing of health and wellbeing in an emotional state, um, is that when you, when you expand the mental model and you include financial wellbeing, um, emotional wellbeing, physical wellbeing, career wellbeing, um, social wellbeing, Right, um, and all you know, all of those dimensions have have been somewhat recalibrated or reappraised at the same time. Um, people don't know what good looks like, and it's a deeply personal decision. And, I, and I'm not suggesting that there is one version of what good is, but your version, your, you know, your version of what great looks like, and, and where where does Unders want to be um, five years, ten years, you know, from now in terms of his health and well-being journey versus where does Dan want to be in five or ten years is still something that we're kind of working with. I think we're still in that sort of clay phase of trying to to mould what good looks like. Mm. Um, enter, uh, you know, enter curated content. Um, and again, you know, that serendipitous discovery of what works for you, right? You might have an idea of the destination, but, um, you know, if, if content or, you know, or content creators can help someone dis- discover meditation or can help someone discover a new way for them to, you know, if you like me, to exercise without exercising, right? I found that through martial arts, right? Mm. Um, but, you know, all, all these emergent, you know, these emergent, um, you know, uh, areas of health and well-being for those early adopters that just want to explore new and just want to experience something that is... Um, that is emergent and feeds and nourishes their, their, their you know, their, their wonderlust in, in that health and wellbeing space. I think that we, we have an amazing role to play. Mm. And, we're, and we're seeing that. I mean, you look at, you look at the success of, um, uh, of Goop, right? Gwyneth Paltrow's mm. uh, health, and wellbeing, health and wellbeing ecosystem. Um, and that shows the level of investment and the level of lean-in that we're seeing from, um, from global populations into this space. Yeah. Uh, Goop is a great example. I mean, there's a... And a number of, I guess, people who are playing in this space where you wouldn't have thought of them as a digital publisher necessarily. Like, I know at Adweek I shared the example of the Swedish bed 
designers and manufacturers Hestens where you know if you if you've got a spare 40,000 euros that you want to spend on on getting a proper night's sleep you can do so or spend $400,000 like Drake um now that's not everyone's cup of tea not everyone has that kind of money but I guess Hestens as a as a bed manufacturer mm. at the very luxury end and, and and the tagline is you don't know sleep until you've slept on a Hestens so uh, there you go I think it's a great tagline but uh, you know they, they're also just going hey you know not everyone's going to be able to afford this so what's the digital ecosystem we can create so they've got their apps they've mm. got meditation apps they've got finish some poses playing music that we can get for free Um, they've got hypnosis apps that promote the greater interest of like amazing sleep you know even if you can't sleep just like drake yep so you know that's just one example of where this this space of you know good health and well-being is being explored and i'm like i even think in my in my personal life i'm like you know, there's so much richness in podcasts, in online content, when it's curated correctly mm. and when it's researched properly. That I'm like, some of the providers and some of the some of the services I consume, like for example, my therapist. I'm like, why doesn't my therapist go and go? Hey, here are the top three podcasts to explore between this session and our next session. And they're verified and they're properly researched yeah. and like they go to the points that we've been discussing here. So as you ruminate and you know, as you process some of your childhood stuff, then like go and listen to these. Mm. And instead of like, I've sort of taken that in my into my own hands, but I find that like the sessions I have with my therapist, several, um, you know, they're <laughs> like, they're more powerful because of the content I consume in between the sessions. It's almost like I get more bang, f- psychological bang for buck, but like I had to go and find them. And I hope that they're all accurate and, you know, tested and verified and you're all the rest. But the, like, you're going to the intellectual gym. Yeah. Right? Yeah. But like, you know, they, I think there's so much scope for, you know, big and small business to kind of go, you know, here's, here's, here's a, Here's an ecosystem or here are, you know, stump, you can stumble upon this, stumble upon that. But like, and I guess particularly in a world where there's so much fake news, there's so much, um, you know, voodoo, there's so much like stuff that's, you know, not necessarily verified and people go down rabbit holes that, you know, frame their entire belief systems, mm. uh, you know, whether it's people reading, you know, Zero Hedge and whether it's people making, you know, um, you know, being educated to become, I don't know, suicide bombers because they have a certain, you know, belief system. Mm. Like our beliefs, partly shaped by the internet and propaganda and other things, lead to potentially, you know, horrendous consequences, not just for the individual, but for society. So Mm. I think, you know, this digital hygiene, digital nutrition is such a critical component. Yeah, as I said, I couldn't agree more. I think um, just sort of adding adding to... A couple of uh, a couple of comments you made. I think that there's you know, even some really brilliant local examples of where um, brands create this ecology of uh, around the um, the health and well-being benefits that that you know that they uh, that they are adjacent to. You know, uh, there's a, a, an amazing um, linen company, Flax Linen, uh, called Bed Threads, uh, and they you know they started as a as a company in Australia you know, doing amazing 
Manchester sheets, mm. right? And, and over time, they've expanded into candles and, and you know, t- uh, l- uh, linen tableware. But the way that they communicate to their audiences and the way that they communicate to um, to their, you know, to their known customer base is much more through the lens of creating this amazing sanctuary, right? And it's all through the lens of well-being, right? Mm. Uh, and it's, you know, it's delivered really authentically. And I think that that's another brilliant example of where something that, you know, could be seen as as a as a utilitarian product when looked at through the utility and the benefit that you get through this manifestation of health and well-being and, and being well and creating an environment that is safe and nourishing to you can have amazing traction in consumers. Mm. Um, and just and, and you made a comment, you know, particularly on on the um, the indoctrination of, of you know suicide bombers, and I think there's this uh, again, you know, there's an amazing podcast um, by a guy called Simon Sinek. I'm sure that you've heard of him called A Bit of Optimism. Mm. And there's this phenomenal, phenomenal episode uh, uh, where he interviews a woman called uh, Dia Khan, uh, who's who, who's famous for you know as a Muslim woman going and sitting down with uh, white supremacists, um, and and the podcast orbits around what is what he calls extreme listening. Um, but the adjacent insights in that are around how how these ecosystems fundamentally indoctrinate these these young humans, right? Mm. And and what I find, you know, what what was illuminating for me was that it was less around these ideals, right? You know, and and, and it was about you know, you know, indoctrinating them through this, uh, you know, through grab your pitchfork, who should we go and vilify? Mm. But much more around finding a place to belong. Um, and it's uh, you know, and and I think it's a profoundly simple you know, on, it's a profoundly simple insight. But it's but it's often overlooked that that these organisations and there's you know a million and one of them across the globe, um, they are what they are because they are exceptional at making fe- people feel comfortable, which allude and, and and my concern is you know particularly post pandemic, mm. um, and particularly with young younger audiences you know where they are more connected than ever before but lonelier than they are. Than you know any of the generations that come before them, um, that this idea of, of of belonging can be used as a tool for amazing good, but also for very nefarious and very dark mm. um, outcomes. To that point, we had Ed Coper from Popularis, uh, which is sort of PR political strategy firm, comms firm behind a lot of the Teal Independence. Yeah, I remember the episode. Um, Yeah, there you go. Um, And so thank you for tuning in. Um, And Ed talks about this idea in his book, Facts and Other Lies, quick little plug, that, you know, humans don't necessarily seek truth. They seek a sense of belonging. Yes, and so I guess I guess that's in my mind. So I'm like, I know F. Scott Fitzgerald said that the f- test of a first-rate intellect is to hold the two ideas in mind at the same time that seem diametrically opposed and still retain the ability to function, if I get that correct, hopefully, F. Scott Fitzgerald. And so we've talked a little bit about the fact that, like, this new generation, they want truth. Mm. At the same time, as a human, we, we want, like, belonging. Like... From a like content perspective and from mm. like a narrative perspective, um, like understand that like fake news spreads six times as fast as real news. Um, but like, how do we win this like battle for like, you know, like providing people a sense of, of belonging and, and community, and but also 
one that's like grounded in some fact and and, and truth mm. uh, as opposed to just made up shit. Well, uh, there's a couple of dimensions to this, and and I'll let me ask you: Are the two diametrically opposed? Right, because one could argue that in our search for belonging, what we're really looking for are finding people who believe what we believe, and I think truth. You know, there's a you know, truth is a really, really, really abstract term, right? And there are there are many truths. Um, you know, it comes down to how you frame things, right? There are truth and fact um, are, are very different because a fact is in isolation and a truth is a construct of our reality, right? And I think, um, you know, to sort of hark back to one of the first um, you know discussions we were having. I think that's on us. I think that, you know, we, the onus is on us to seek truth and, and, and to seek truth through a very many set of perspectives. Um, you know, you can have two people that watch the same thing happen but get two really different outcomes, you know, especially when you get to sort of descendant events and interpretations of things. You know, there are very many mm. truths out there um, and this, there's, a, you know, there's a deep, dark rabbit warren of psychology mm-hmm. and, and, and philosophy, we can go down there. But I think, you know, I think we, you know, particularly in the age of information, are going to have to take individual responsibility in, in seeking truths and seeking perspectives and forming truths. Um, and I think, you know, the risk is if we, if we don't invest sufficiently, then you're right, right? Then, then it's just about the first perspective and, and you know, and, and the risk is we go too quickly to an answer without understanding all of the perspectives. And, and interestingly, this is something that, that, I've, um, that I actively have tried to do, you know, uh, about a year ago. You know, every year I, I try to, to, to challenge myself in, you know, in a really abstract and probably useless way. Um, and, and, you know, and for the last year I've, I've really tried to consume more more content and more perspective that optically would be polarised to my own, right? Um, things like really trying to understand the arguments for pro-gun, right, for pro-gun rights, uh, where I'm, you know, I would be genuinely diametrically opposed to, you know, to, mm. to munitions. Or, you know, things like um, Trump, you mentioned Trump, right? And really trying to understand the other side of the coin because it's very easy for me to sit here, in, you know, from my perspective and... Um, and I and you know and, and say that I am categorical in my understanding of the man and, and and how how he got where he got and how the US has gotten to where the US has gotten off the back of the Trump presidency. Um, it takes a lot more stomach and a lot more uh, intellectual curiosity to go to really sit down and un- and try to understand the other side of the coin and understand where the common ground is versus the polarised perspective. Um, and so I think, unfortunately, there, there's, not a, there's not a rod for our back on this one, mm. I think. You know, and, and, and this is the thing. This genuinely keeps me up at night. You know, I've got young children who, who knows what the information flow is going to be by the time they are, you know, they are adolescent and they are you know, synthesising more information than I could possibly consider. Mm. Um, and how do, I, 
how do I put it on them, right? I think that it all comes back to our personal responsibility. There's no, there's no framework that's going to fix this problem of, of fake news. And, and I think, unfortunately, with you know, in the age of deep fakes, it's going to become more and more challenging for us to tell truth from mistruth, mm. right? Particularly visually, right? I think, you know, at the moment, the the the, the news first fake news. Um, ecology sits in sort of text-based or, or, you know, audio-based contexts, what happens when deep fakes and the technology that sits behind it becomes so effective that you and I can sit and watch a video of someone saying something and you and I optically would categorically say that that was the person saying it and it could be 100% false. Mm. And, how, and then how do we know? How do we, you know, how do we put... The you know the proceed the inter- the mi- the mental procedures in place to to litigate that to 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 always come with a healthy level of skepticism um, and to seek before you know to really seek to understand before we form our opinion mm. and also I mean just just you just think in terms of like content production and and. I mean, really, you're just invited to the studio here so we can capture a lot of, you know, facial movements yeah. and, and, and all the rest so we can, you know, spread some fake news. Um, no, but, like, you, you know, it's it's that content beast and feeding the beast that actually sits at the at the core of all of this synthetic media as well, mm. whether it's manipulating Barack Obama's words or Putin's words or... And, I, and like, I was at a, at, at a cyber cybersecurity event a couple of weeks back and I used this example because everyone everyone was very, very focused on the Optus breach and the you know and the Medibank breach and people concerned for their for their privacy. And I was like, yeah, but like for sure. Mm. <laughs> you know, consumers will certainly the conscious consumers are very conscious of their um, their data being used and how long it should be you know, looked after and, and before it's deleted and all the rest. By the way, even though I'm not a Medibank customer anymore, <laughs> once upon a time as a student, I was. And I got the email saying, hey, your uh, your yeah, data, yeah. even as a non-customer, because you opted to go for another insurer many, many years ago. Yeah, um, we've held your data for 20 years. Yeah, and I'm like, um, why, on, the- <laughs> why on earth? And they're like, we're trying to be, you know, customer-centric by being data-centric. Mm. Um, but I often talk about the fact that you know, we can hack narratives. We can, you know, we can manipulate. We can make Putin speak English. You know, like, yeah. like, um, uh, like has happened uh, via several news media who've just sort of made the point that they can, you know, manipulate via synthetic media and, and deep fakes what someone says um, yeah. in a very convincing, uh, you know, Russian accent in English. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I'm like, I'm concerned in that. In that space, again, like even if I think about, you know, the UN Sustainable Development Goals as these sort of, you know, creativity catalysts, um, they talk in UN Sustainable Development Goal number 12 of responsible production and consumption. And while the focus there in many ways is sort of on the circular economy mm-hmm. and, and, and physical uh, physical production and consumption, um, I guess my sort of tangential conversation here or question to you is like the current media landscape, given some of these technologies, how can the current or future media landscape be responsible and how can we sort of nudge or encourage people to 
consume content and news responsibly? It's a great question. Um, okay, there's a couple of elements to this. Um, fundamentally, I think I think the buck stops with the individual, right? I think we as individuals need to be cognizant of the ecology of information. And this isn't a news or a, or a publication challenge. This is, we are, you know, we are in an information age. We are ravenous consumers of information. I mean, our fridges can talk to us and tell us what we need. You know, if you've got enough for a, a very expensive fridge, it can tell you what you need to order from Woolworths or Coles, right? Um, People that like Heston's beds or... Yeah, like yeah, or, or, uh, <laughs> or self-ordering fridges. Um, but I think... This is why published and professional published media exist, mm. right? I think what we're going to see, and um, and we see this when we speak to consumers over time, particularly as as it becomes much more difficult to understand what is real from what isn't real. The role of the professional publishers comes to the fore, right? Brands become a trusted home for real news, right? Now. There might be news that is real that has very different perspectives, right? You know, there are, you know, a, div a huge diversity of perspectives, even within Australia. And there are different media organisations that that uh, platform and celebrate and share and, and um, you know, and, and encourage all forms of perspective. And, and that, I think, is part of having a free free democracy. And I think, it, you know, the, the alternative would be much, much more concerning in my mind. Um, but... In an age where, to your point, you could get Vladimir Putin to, you know, to speak in a, you know, a, a somewhat respectable Russian accent in mm -hmm. English, um, that's where trusted ecosystems come in, right? And that's the value exchange, right? The reason, and we see this. Um, this has sort of been the. We see this with a lot of um, a lot of products and sectors. But um, as people move into the sector or move into the, you know, move into the industry, and, and we see this in news, um, as the stakes get higher in life, right? As you know. As we've got kids and we need to navigate wealth creation, we need to navigate schools, we need to navigate aged care for our parents, um, as we need to understand the political topography to be able to have a government that aligns, you know, again, that, that believes what we believe and aligns to what we want. Um, herein lies the value exchange of, of published media, mm. right? In you subscribing or uh, or you, um, you exchanging, you know, value in some way with that publisher that's where quality journalism comes in um, that's the value exchange the expectation is if I'm paying for my subscription that the engine is curating trusted content and so it, you know the the adage I like to use is that you know in a world of deep fakes you know if we park forward 10 years um, trusted brands become both a lighthouse and an anchor. A lighthouse in terms of, gu you know, guiding ships to shore, right? Um, here is something that has been vetted, that has been um, truly checked from a QA perspective, and this is something that we believe you need to know. And then an anchor in terms of, and here is everything else that may be of interest. Mm. Um, and I think, you know, particularly in the age of, of citizen journalism, um, you know, I certainly hope that there is, you know, that there is a meaningful place for trusted brands to exist because, um, you know, without them, as you, you know, as you've alluded to, it becomes the Wild West and you just don't know. Mm. Um, and, and without some really serious investment of time, which none of us have, right, mm. 
it takes a really smart, really acutely aware operator to be able to understand a deep fake from a not deep fake because you've got to go and check it and you've got to correlate and you've got to triangulate lots of different sources. Mm. And so if anything, I think over time, yeah. um, the, the, you know, the construct of published brands, albeit in a very different form factor, mm. you know, not necessarily a masthead or a broadsheet, um, will have a larger role to play, um, not a more diminished one. Mm. And I, I just think of my media consumption um, throughout the pandemic. Uh, I know in in the early days, I, I had a tendency to actually kind of stop looking at the, you know, like I, th- I thought of the news and, mm. the, and the daily like, you know, infection count and, mm. and case numbers and all that. I was like, okay, well, this is just noise. Like I'm like, zoom out a little bit. I actually had to stop myself from watching the news at times, but I went to more long form to mm. things that were published, not on a, you know, within the daily sort of news cycle. And I doubled down on, you know, Wired magazine subscriptions and, and Monocle and, you know, Wall Street Journal and New York Times and The Australian and others. Yeah. Because <laughs> I thought, like, I want to get the sort of, you know, I want to get the long range perspective here mm-hmm. um i think of sometimes like news like you know like once upon a time i, I used to like be a research assistant to a, to a to a trader in the in the forex market and and you know he said you know sometimes markets are like fractal like you can you can trade yeah, every yeah. minute yeah. or you can like the the powerful thing is like what are the mega trends that like over time will help you you're not going to be as busy like, mm. and you're not going to be um in your sort of reactive lizard mind a lot, but like you can make, it's kind of like trader versus investor. Like what's the, what's the longer term perspective here? Low GI, high GI. Yeah, that's it. And so um, I guess I'm like thinking about content and, and, you know, frequently, you know, whether it's Meta, Facebook, as we formerly knew them and, and a variety of other platforms, you know, they sort of measured a view as like, you know, three seconds mm, or, the, um, and then the goldfish the, paradox. Yeah. And then yeah. at the same time, um, as Mike Handley, one of our other guests, former, formerly the digital editor of, of the World Economic Forum, said uh, recently, he said, you know, the average time that people spent on television or via digital news media watching someone stand in line, mm. virtually static, waiting you know, at the Queen's funeral Mm. was 17 minutes. So not only are people spending inordinate amounts of time waiting in line to to say farewell, Mm. um, rest in peace to the Queen, but here in Australia and elsewhere, people watching it Mm. and just sitting there watching people stand in line. Mm. I mean, I couldn't, like for me, it's like, hopefully no disrespect here, but like that's like Mm. watching paint dry. And yet people were, you know, watching this phenomenon in a way that certainly wasn't, you know, it wasn't a, it wasn't a real, it wasn't a 10 second or even a three second yeah. story. There's like, are we underestimating the capability of humans to actually <laughs> pay attention? Yes. Uh, and and there's more to that. I'm being facetious by just saying mm. yes. I think... Um, we often get caught up, in my, in my opinion, we get caught up on headline metrics that are taken out of context. 
So there's absolutely no doubt that there are certain ecosystems where the average attention span or the way that they are structured alludes to a three-second interaction. But to your point, right, I mean, you know, the 17 minutes for the Queen's funeral, that's, you know, we've re rediscovered the lost art of captivated attention, right? And I think what we're going to start to see is, is very much a horses-for-courses consumption universe. There are going to be certain ecosystems um, that are short-form, right? Bite-sized, snackable, what I want, where I want. There's going to be certain ecosystems that are inherently social to, to what you alluded to earlier that really draw on the social currency and the shareability of content. But then there are going to be sources where people go for what is a slower burn, low GI consumption mm. experience. And, you know, certainly when, when, the stakes gets, when the stakes get raised, right, when you're trying to choose a school for your son or daughter, when you're trying to navigate your wealth creation strategy, when you're trying to understand or even explore something that you really love, like new music or, you know, upcoming, um, upcoming music, uh, you know, music acts or, or events across Sydney or anywhere else across Australia for that, um, you're certainly going to lean in. And, and so what we're seeing, you know, what I'm certainly seeing and, and we're seeing is... Um, a much broader palette of consumption moments. Um, we, you know, for every for every consumer and for every audience member that loves the snackable moment between moments, the the digital all you can eat buffet, that um, ability for ubiquitous access for um, whatever format I want when I want it in the moment that I've got. We have just as many that are gravitating towards the ritual and ceremony mm. of it. The the two-hour ceremony of, you know, grabbing your cup of coffee, sitting in your sunroom on the weekend. Um, and, you know, we, we are, you know, and it's every industry. It's, you know, I don't think it's just, just a media phenomenon, but every industry, you know, the, the, the risk is that you become really myopic, right? That you invest so much time focusing on the product or the service that you're trying to deliver in pursuit of delighting your customers that you forget that you can only see a subset of the whole picture. And then we see, you know, uh, a stat come out, you know, from a company that might be in growth or for a company that might be gaining share because they're responding to an adjacent need that, you know, your products mm. or service might not. And we look at that and we go, well, that's growing. And, and you know, that's short form snackable content. We go, you know, and industries go, all right, let's pile on that. Yeah. Right? And we're seeing more and more that actually that's not necessarily the case. Um, you know, we've seen video content in ecosystems uh, that have had meteoric success and growth not resonate quite as well because the consumer proposition is text and audio heavy or it's long form to your point, right? And so I think respecting that information consumption is a deeply personal, incredibly fluid and incredibly diverse component of our lives um, allows for every, every type and taste and texture to exist. Mm. Um, and the risk is that you funnel too quickly to one thing and we starve consumers of things that might be delighting them on, on other consumption occasions. Mm. Yeah, because that, again, like that digital nutrition mix. Um, yeah, back to is, a balanced like, diet. Yeah, yeah, chunks, you know, length, you know, depth, 
clickbait versus you know war and peace. I yeah. mean, I think it's I think it's all really relevant. I mean, the, the the format that's also been emergent for a number of years now is this idea of you know citizen journalism. Mm. You know, we've got influencers and you know as you said in the wealth creation space finfluencers you know there's you know there's tiktok psychologists uh there's citizen journalists um but there's also people producing pretty deep and meaningful podcasts and i think of serial for example mm. um podcasts producing real societal or even justice outcomes like Adnan Syed mm. um, who was you know the pr- protagonist on 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 I think the first or second season of Serial you know he's just been released in the United States um, held not guilty for a crime he was convicted of 20 years ago um, we've got here in Australia closer to home uh, because of a podcast here we've got Chris Dawson um being yeah. convicted of of a crime again the podcast was there to you know dig deeper than you know other institutions yeah, were pay. able to i mean an amazing outcome through you know blood sweat and tears in terms of un- uncovering the story that was beneath the story yeah, yeah. what like what are, what are your thoughts on this because you know obviously like <laughs> the justice system is there now they're obviously not doing a perfect job but all of a sudden like with a, you know, with a roadcaster and some road mics, and you know, journalists who freelance journalists, etc. Like, what does a democratization of the medium do? You know, yeah, for so better I, and for worse. Yeah, yeah. So I think you sort of you're, you're alluding to sort of the changing role of news, so to speak, right? And I think the the former, right? You know, the role of, of teachers' pet. I mean, that is the foundational objective of you know, of, uh, of the free press, right, and of, of dedicated journalism, right? You know, it's, it's amazing to see how outcomes, uh, how profoundly impactful outcomes, you know, a family will rest easier at night knowing that, you know, someone has been brought to justice, um, platforming the voices that are often overlooked, right? Um, but I think, you know, and, and, and the changing role of news is something that obviously I, I, I have the pleasure of exploring deeply and, you know, and really, really stretching you know, the framework of, of, of news um, and, and what, you know, where news is going in, in this, you know, amazing evolution of information consumption. And and we see a couple of things. Um, you know, the first is what I call a shift from yesterday's news to tomorrow's, right? Um, if you think about news a, couple, a few hundred years ago, um, you know, the, 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 the paper boy on the corner, you know, we holding the, holding the broadsheet, you know, that the Titanic had... had been sunk. Um, the news historically was a lot more about what happened yesterday, right? What happened yesterday? What should you know? What should you care about? Um, and here's a perspective. Mm. Um, what we see more and more, or our, I should say what our consumers and our audiences tell us more and more, is it is much more about help me navigate tomorrow. Help me make optimal decisions. Help me make, you know, better choices in where my children should go to school, in how should I amass future financial well-being, in what should I do with my ageing parents, in, you know, in which government is going to align to the values or, and, you know, which, which uh, to the values that I hold and, and, you know, support the world that I want my children to inherit, right? 
Um, and, you know, so the first is, I think, the shift towards future-facing, which I think is brilliant, right? It, 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 it becomes much more navigatory and much less reflective. Um, then we see these emerging roles in terms of, you know, what we say, news not just being the news, right? There is a much, uh, you know, lowercase news. We, we, we see a much bigger role to play in terms of the, the articulation of our role from our consumers in, in things that you would not consider what I would call a hard news cycle, current affairs, breaking news, national, you know, politics. We, we see a lot more around, you know, three areas. Firstly, help me make better choices tomorrow. Um, the second is be a catalyst for positive social change, right? And, and, and that has been around forever and a day in a more of a diffused respect. What we see now is that, that consumers and audiences are looking towards the media in terms of the role that we play towards delivering positive social change, building a better country, right? Um, you know, advocating for the issues that truly matter. And then the third, and this was most surprising, is for my own personal development and the role that media and news and content plays in making me the best version of myself mm. and the best version that I can be for my parents, for my daughter, for my son, mm. for my peers, for my team. Mm. Um, and I think that's going to become more important over time as the newsroom, you know, in the framework of what we think, diffuses, right? Because the reality is, and the best example of this is George Floyd, right? The newsroom that broke the story of George Floyd was the man or woman holding the phone at the time that he unfortunately died. That was the breaking news. And, and in, you know, in an age of Twitter, albeit let's, who knows where, mm. <laughs> where that road's gonna lead given everything that's happened recently. Mm. But in the age of democratized social media, breaking news spreads like wildfire. And so it's, it, it's, on, it's on us to satiate the other needs more and more. Not to say that the role of, you know, of, of, to, you, to the point that you and I were discussing earlier, there is something importantly to be said about when a news story is covered by a professional publisher, it's been vetted and it is the news, right? To your mm. point, it's not, you know, it's not uh, a deep fake of, you know, of a political leader um, saying things that he didn't say or she didn't say. But I think the role of news becomes much more expansive. And we see this in the language that young people use. News and entertainment are becoming much more co-located. Um, if you're like me and you, you love your music or you're, you know, you're a petrol head or you love to go out and eat, eat food and drink great craft beer from, you know, from, the, from the, the, the local providers on the northern beaches, mm. um, keeping up to date on those things is news, right? Mm. What are the new craft breweries? What are the new emergent headphone technologies, the new amazing headphones that you're going to buy? What's the new, you know, the new uh, Formula One team that's going to join mm. in 2025? That's equally news hmm. as is what happened yesterday what are the decisions you're going to make today and how do you make better decisions tomorrow hmm. fascinating i mean like and, and then in this age like even instant gratification is is too slow yet we are more future leaning as a futurist i would ask the question why on earth would it be any other any other way right um and I mean, it, it, it almost sounds like, you know, news and, and 
publishing platform. So almost becoming this sort of, you know, in the context, I guess, of digital nutrition, almost this sort of personal development platform where, you know, certainly the content might be a little bit more more, more highbrow than some of the, like a Tony Robbins, but, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. like it's, uh, you know, it's becoming this yeah, space where absolutely. that is so deeply informative about how people can make other decisions today to, to create a, you know, better climate, a better, you know, climate proofing you know their houses and their careers and you know um in an age of robotics and ai what kind of jobs should your your kids absolutely you know to be thinking about um it you know your digital nutritionist Mm. um and and, and i couldn't agree more and i I think we see this we see this across the globe right The, the role of of content becoming much more navigatory and much more much more expansive um yeah, like, like I think of, um, I think of this idea of politicians who are of, often making you know big promises about about the future. I mean, they're playing by certainly a different standard and a different sort of code of conduct compared to brands. I mean, brands that you represent and collaborate with, they um, cannot make certain claims. Or they'll get into deep, deep trouble if they're misrepresenting the truth. Mm-hmm. Politicians can make future promises, sort of willy nilly. I mean, they'll kept be kept to some kind of account, but it's not the same. Like they can, because, like because they're talking about you know the future, or you know we'll commit this much to you know public school funding or whatever. Um, I guess what I'm in this age where like supply chains are becoming the story where everyone's prodding and they want to know from farm to table, from producer to consumer, you know, what is the life cycle of Daisy, the, you know, the bistecca that we're about to consume, you know, at the restaurant, like, is that verified and and was she only grass fed? Um, Like I'm thinking in, in terms of, in terms of news and in terms of brands, what the implications are. Because, like, I tried two days ago to go down to our friends at Woolworths here in Avalon Beach um, because we take our soft plastic recycling there and have been doing so for the last few years. And uh, because it's supposedly part of the circular economy mm. and you don't, you don't need to comment on this particular brand, but, like, I went back there with, with our soft plastics and they go, oh, we've stopped doing that. And they were very iffy about it in the shop. They're like, oh, might, might return sometime in the future. And I was like, I'm just going to go online and just like, because I wanted to tweet about it because I was, you know, I was like, Brad, you know, Banducci, what, like, what's, what's going on here? Mm. Um, so I tweeted about it. And I was like, oh, recycle fail. Um, took a picture of like, you know, we might provide this service again in the future. But like, Partly because it's, a, it's an inconvenience. We've got soft plastics that are building up. We want to take them back and do the right thing by, the na- by nature, by the environment. But also, there's this brand promise that we've been given that Woolworths will be the custodian. Um, they will, um, and Coles too, by the way, um, they will take responsibility, even if it's not their soft plastic. You know, they'll look after it. They'll turn it into who knows, packaging mm. or whatever else it is and, and, and keep it out of the oceans. Anyway, it turns out that like these soft plastics have just been stockpiled mm. and not gone into the circular mm. economy. They're not being recycled, upcycled or repurposed. 
in an era where like the supply chain is the story and there's great journalists who are exposing brands, like there's a great green story there potentially. But like, I feel like the whole like ESG and environmental agenda has been sat, you know, it's been pushed back. And now anyone that like is sort of anti-green will just be like, oh, well, you know, when, you know, when they're talking about recycling and, and you know, being responsible, it just goes into a stockpile mm. and, and that is turned into a massive environmental and, you know, fire hazard. Um, so I guess my, my questions are sort of around this area of like verified story, um, you know, purpose-led brands, like what are the dangers, risks, and how does someone tell verified story from a brand perspective in a way that is authentic where they also limiting the kind of risks that obviously both Coles and Woolworths have had in their association with Red Cycle. You don't need to comment on the brands mm. necessarily yeah, yeah. just as a concept. So so this is this is a really hot topic of conversation. Um, and you know one of the things that I'm I'm deeply passionate about is is you know, companies and brands and industries being for good. And I think we often conflate the good that we need to do with purely sustainability. Um, and I think it's really interesting because um, with certain areas, you know, it, it's about getting it right, right? So, you know, with sustainability, you know, and, and, um, and environmental, you know, initiatives, it's, it's, the role that businesses have to play in getting it right. Whereas in data, for example, and we've seen this really recently play out, it's not necessarily all about getting it right. It's almost hygiene. You know, you're expected as an enterprise or a brand to get it right. The blowback comes when you get it wrong, right? Um, it's a downside risk, not an upside risk. And I think to answer your question, what, what we can do to ensure that what shapes our opinion is verified is is holding companies to account. I think, and, and and it's amazing that that consumers are becoming more and more acutely aware of greenwashing and purpose washing and virtual virtue signalling, and the benefits to a business do not outweigh the costs if it it's found out to be false. Um, and I think that there's a lot of great work being put into sort of you know B B verification and you know and making mm -hmm. sure that that. Um, people are externally and independently vetted for the good that they do. Um, but I think, again, you know, and, and, and probably sounding like a broken record, it's on us as consumers. And I think that we're, we're going we're gonna to move more and more to an age of, of um, individual responsibility in making sure that the brands that we buy, right, are held to account, right? Mm. There is no stronger a message to an organisation than talking with your wallet, right? Um, and companies that, that truly walk the talk on this. You know, companies like Patagonia is, is, is often the loudest <clears throat> example of this, that, that truly live and breathe the purpose that they talk to um, will thrive, right? Mm. And, and they will build incredibly sticky customer bases that will be there with them through the good and the bad times. And, and you know, I think we, we, all as, we all as consumers would be ignorant to think that you know, companies that are playing the infinite game, right? There's another, you know, Simon Sinek another reference. Simon Sinek <laughs> reference. Um, you're, 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 you know, you're peering into certainly who who I am as a person. But in companies that are playing the infinite game, there will be circumstances where they get it wrong. And, and, and I think that this harks to one of the other challenges that 
but we can go down this way a bit more if you want, um, where people are vilified or companies are vilified for getting it wrong. Um, that there is no that there is no bandwidth for for shifting or for agile mentality or for mental mm. agility. You know, politicians. You you mentioned politicians. So I think this is a, gr- a great example. Um, don't you think that it's counterproductive to truly punish politicians for changing their mind? Right, and we see this play out all the time. Right, how many how often do we see a politician? For, form a position on better information, on more data, on a more balanced mm. nutrition. But up comes a handheld video or a YouTube video from them 15 or 20 years ago. And we are outraged that they are not holding the same narrative or towing the same line that they were 15 years ago. And they're punished for it. You know, my perspective is why wouldn't you celebrate the fact that someone is forming an opinion or shifting a perspective based Mm. on better information. And so what we actually do is we suffocate progress because the, you know, people in positions of power are so fearful of being cancelled or being vilified because they have formed an opinion that is subtly different to what they've held 20 years ago. Mm. You know, God forbid, you know, God forbid I should disagree with my, you know, 15-year-old self, you know. Mm. Um and so I think it's a combination of respecting the fluidity of these things and respecting the fact that, that organisations and people and, and perspectives are fallible mm. and focusing on progress, focusing on, um, on the role that we play as individuals in driving the meta change. Um, and I think the worst thing that we can do is put it all on them because we, we have an equal role to play in in partnering with these organizations and brands and directing these organizations and brands and informing these organizations and brands to do good and be good mm. and do better. Well, like a couple of just immediate like reactions or reflections on that. Um, I mean, I've been sent emails by Optus, by Medibank. Um, I'm still an Optus customer. Uh, I'm not a Medibank customer anymore. I haven't been for many years. Um, so there's still investigations as to whether any of my data was compromised. Hmm. So I would say my human sort of reaction to that is like uncomfortable, um, concerned, but like I'm not. I would say in terms of my reactions though, you know, the 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 breach of my, you know, those data breaches, certainly they're, they're con- very disconcerting. And, and, and other people's data is probably way more hacked and out there on the Russian dark web or wherever um, than, than mine. But this like red cycle, Woolworths, Coles, circular economy claims, I feel more let down by mm. that because I know that I shifted my consumption yeah, they've habits. Traded, they've traded off that perception. Because yeah. like a few years ago, like it was like Harris Farm and some of the locals here, like the local butcher and the local, you know, whole food store and the the local um, health food store and 
um, Harris Farm, etc. So, and then I'm like, oh, Woolies is now green. And like I was facilitating a panel at the Australian Food and Grocery Council's annual uh, conference with the head of sustainability for Woolies. And so I was like, oh, yeah, I'm like, I'm going to start spending a little bit of my more of my wallet with Woolies because of the soft plastic recycling and some of the efforts into the circular economy that they were making you know to the detriment of some of the other brands yeah, yeah that i was previously spending money with and now i'm like oh you've been stockpiling my <laughs> like my soft plastics i could have done that myself in my garage mm. like yeah and so there is a probably a deeper sense and i don't know if i'm right or wrong but it's just like no, what no, I'm no, feeling I, in my body, yeah, yeah, more of a disappointment with Woolworths. Wool, wool I, I think sense. there's a really interesting analogy to this, right? Um, let's say you hire someone, right? And, and again, you know, Opti Optus, um, you know, they haven't traded off the fact that they are the most data secure telecommunications company in the world. Now, I'm not, I'm certainly not condoning what has happened, nor do I know enough to formally comment on that. But if we fired our employees at the first mistake that they made, the unfortunate outcome of that would be a systemic lack of growth in your people, right? Optus will grow from this, right? There's mm -hmm. no question. Mm -hmm. And the fact that there's been a breach doesn't negate the fact that for many Australians, and I'm not, I'm not, you know, saying I'm for or against Optus, and nor, nor am I. I'm gonna, you know, mm -hmm. gonna comment on which telecommunications company I might choose to go with, but. If we, if all of a sudden a single mistake negated all of the other benefit that that company had given you, right, all of the value that they had created in your life, wouldn't we be just be doing ourselves a disservice in allowing these companies to push the boundaries and experiment? Because the reality is, um, and, 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 you know, and, and the usage of data and, and, and how these companies use these data um, is an interesting rabbit warren we can go down, but fundamentally, there's no nefarious agenda to this, right? They use this data to drive better outcomes for their customers, right? Fundamentally, the usage of data is to create better products that are more aligned to your needs and to delight you. Now, there are absolutely checks and balances that need to be put in place, and clearly there, was, there have been missteps. But this idea of you know, you're, the you're dead to me mentality, I think is a really challenging one. And to your point, it's really different to if you hired an employee because they platformed themselves as a subject matter expert in a particular field or a particular uh, software or a particular mm. capability, right? And that's why you hired them, to mm. your point. Mm. And then you bring them on board and you find out that in actual fact, they have no idea what they're doing mm. and they've been doing it in a completely different system and playing it off as work that they've done in that system that you had hired them for. And I think they're, they're two very different things, right? And one, I think you have every right to really be frustrated with the fact that you've made decisions on a framing or a way that they have been trading. The other is no question a misstep, but it's it hasn't been a driver for why they have, you know, it hasn't been a core part of, of their consumer value proposition. And look, there, there will probably be people that disagree with me on mm. this, but I think um, this idea, this sort of binary between on or off has no other impact 
except suffocating progress mm. and suffocating progression and suffocating companies mm. and brands and people doing better and yeah. in the pursuit of doing better. Uh, so don't worry, I will still I will still be a Woolies customer and I'll still trade my data and still swipe my loyalty card yeah. um, there. But um, maybe I'll distribute my my wallet or share a wallet a little bit differently because of this little setback that that is absolutely going to happen uh, in, in my should. life but uh, i'm not i'm not dismissing them and i think they will grow um mm. as will coles as will, will red cycle that was meant to do all this work because they'd sort of handed it off to a third party to handle it all which again goes to the point of supply chains <laughs> you've got, got to be yeah, able yeah. to like and, and, verify and to B Corp standards and certifications, you've got to be able to make sure that the people you work with are actually also mm. doing a good job. Absolutely. And, and I think there is nothing more important, I think, than consumer-held accountability. Yeah. Right. And like we've talked, you know, a little bit of politics there. We've talked about brands, um, you know, verified story, truth. Um there's a quote that's often ascribed to John Maynard Keynes. If you go back through the internet, some people say he said it. Some people said it came from another pundit. But um, there's this idea that, to your point of changing minds, um, that um, when he was asked, why do you change your mind on this? And, you know, getting criticized for it. Hmm. The idea was, or the response was, when the external facts change, you make a better I, decision. I change. I, I change yeah. my mind. Yeah. What do you do? Yeah. And I think it's a really nice way of kind of going. Okay, well, if if the external environment or whatever changes, or you grow and evolve as a human, um, and if the facts, if the lay of the land changes, like climate change getting more severe, or whatever it happens to be. Like, do you just hell hold on to very long-held beliefs or do you change your mind based upon what's going on in the external environment or how you're evolving your consciousness as a human being or whatever? Like, we shouldn't have to feel bad about changing our minds and evolving our minds. And, and I think it takes incredible courage, right, to have the courage to change your mind, to have, to have the courage to change your mind publicly. Mm. I think, you know, that the... The stakes that you're playing with there cannot be understated. And mm. I think that, you know, we have lost, you know, we've kind of gone off piste a little bit in terms of our framing of people changing their mind. And I think that, you know, it it should truly be celebrated, mm. right? And making better decisions off better information at a time where things are fluid. I mean, you know, you even look at the medical system, right? The things that we thought were true, categorically true based on the science 100 years ago versus what we know now. You know, could you imagine a world where, you know, the sciences or the medical industry couldn't change its mind on better data? But in our political ecosystem or in our commercial ecosystem that you could argue have just as much of an impact on our lives, we don't hold the same mental agility. We're much more rigid you know, mm. often to our own unfortunate, mm. you know, diminished outcomes. Mm. So I think we're kind of nearly into the end zone. It's been a – you've had a great innings here, um, Dan. Um, I mean, you work in growth intelligence, both 
you know, figuratively, literally, <laughs> metaphorically. Um, talking about rigidity, fluidity, expansion of minds, maybe changing of hearts, um, your own passions. Mm. Um, like, how, given everything we've talked about, how do brands, people, teams actually grow intelligently into a better version of, of, of the future? It's a great question. I think, and there's a, there's a million different answers to this, but I might, I might give you three, three ambitions or three hopes. I think the first is, I think the first thing that we can do is expand our perspective, relentlessly expand our perspectives. Um, I think be absolutely cognizant and acutely aware of the tension between personalization, curation and perspective um, and, and be vigilant in stretching what we know and what we think to be the truth. I think secondly, forget what you think you know because the rate of change is so rapid and we are going through an era of tectonic shifts that will truly destabilize everything that you have depended on in the past, you know, and you and I were discussing this at Adweek, you know. Um, it's truly all up for grabs with consumers. What you think you know about your consumers, what you think your consumers think about you and love about you and know and distaste about you may fundamentally change through something as transformative as a pandemic. Um, and, and I think, you know, to that point, getting incredibly close to your customers and fundamentally solving problems for them because that's what we're in the business of. We are in the business of solving problems, right, for our customers. doesn't matter what industry you're in. If you are not solving a customer problem, you are not going to be deemed an essential good or service. Um, so really, you know, truly getting close to your customers and staying close to them and, and recognising that what you thought you knew yesterday will not hold water tomorrow. Mm. And then I think finally, um, and this is probably the idealist in me, is bring a perennial optimism, right? I think we need, you know, we need to see the good in people. We need to see the good in brands. We need to see the good in what we do. And when the going gets tough, it's easy to, to find a scapegoat to blame for the circumstances that we are in. And so I think, you know, coming to the table with a sense of optimism and energizing optimism to to sort of to bring your own momentum towards doing good and being good i think is going to be critically important and i'm going to add a fourth even though i said it was three um and i think that this is sort of hopefully the thematic that's permeated through everything which is um the best thing that you can do for this world and the best thing that you can do in terms of growing intelligently is recognizing the role that you play in that growth. 
um, depending on systems and processes and frameworks and legislation and governments, is a false economy. And taking ownership for the decisions that we make, taking ownership for the information we consume, taking ownership for litigating the decisions and the information that we make, and taking personal responsibility, I think, is will deliver the most profound change. Because before you can be there for one another, you've got to be there for yourself. Mm. Um, Very wise words. I was, um, yeah, reminded of many George Lucas sort of heroes <laughs> uh, journey stories. There, there's actually, I mean, a total very Jedi tangential. Yeah, very <laughs> Jedi. You are very, you have a, a Jedi mind. If I ever saw one, um, but I actually thought of a totally different. Um, little um george lucas movie there um, i don't know if you remember the movie willow no it's about a, this wonderful um uh little little man um i think at the time we we would have said that he suffered from dwarfism it's very much a hero's journey sort of um moses style movie where he lives in this little village where everyone everyone suffers from dwarfism but they're you know very very happy jovial community and and one day they find a little baby in the reeds next to their village um and it it, it's a worthwhile watch i think it's from 1987 88 something like that i give away my age here uh the gen y that i am um but one of my favorite movies and um and there's a wonderful quote in it where Willow goes on this journey. He's sort of like a bit of an amateur magician. Um, he goes on this quest where he has to fight the evil queen. And, you know, like they find out that this this little baby that came to their home in, 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 in the village was like has special powers and is potentially, this, you know, future challenger to the evil queen and, and all the rest. And... Um, Willow, that is an amateur magician who goes to the real magician, like the, the elder, you know, the elder in his community who actually knows a bit about magic. And the, and the quote and the, and the question is, to your point before, um, the elder sage says, forget all you know or you think you know, magic is the bloodstream of the universe and all the magic sits in your finger. I think it's very empowering. Oh, well. um, <laughs> yeah, um, clearly left an imprint on my psyche at a, at a, at a young age. Um, and your comments um, reminded me of that—that that there's, you know, magic is the bloodstream of the universe, but also there, you know, we have we actually as individuals have some some things to do here and forget all we know and we think we know. We need to challenge ourselves and do things anew. And I think my final reflection from today is that while you and I love to work in the world of data and analytics and I often say, you know, you can't claim to be customer-centric unless you're data-centric and probably security-centric these days as well. (laughs) I would also add this lens that like, yes, if we're data-centric, we can be client-centric, but how can we really be client-centric unless we're also, you know, planet-centric at the same time? And human-centric. Yeah. Because what's the point of just being customer-centric and spoiling and wowing our customers, you know, with wealth advice and the best schools if... You're not building a better world. Exactly. Because it just 
without that, it's kind of pointless. And I think it goes back to your point around, you know, what's a world worth inheriting for the next generation as well. So thank you so much My for, um, I was going to say breaking bread, but, you know, having microbrewery, cracking cans, uh, cracking cans yeah. and just having a great conversation up here on the My Northern pleasure. Beaches. Thank you so much for having me. It's yeah. been an absolute delight. Great to have you on the second renaissance. My pleasure. Thank you. For more information about the Second Renaissance and our work on sustainable innovation, please visit my website, www.andersumanilson.com. We would appreciate if you can take a moment to share the podcast with a friend or a colleague and help build the movement. We hope that what we learn together on the Second Renaissance can help us all build a sustainable future for ourselves and our children. See you in the near future.